0: I don't know uh, much about the law, and I'm not a professional ethicist, and I'm not a medic, uh, so those are my apologies. Um, uh, But I do know a bit about disability, and I really want to uh, sketch in some of the issues uh, in terms of prenatal um, uh, diagnosis. There's an interesting irony. 2003, as you know, is the 50th anniversary of the identification of the structure of DNA uh, by Crick, Watson, Franklin, and Wilkins and it's also European Year of Disabled People. So in a way, symbolically, you've got a collision between arguably two worldviews. A a worldview which would, and I'm polarizing these, and they don't really exist like this, but a worldview which would say that um, uh, we will be able to understand, uh, detect, uh, if not cure, prevent disease by genetic means, and a worldview which says that the problems of disability are to do with social exclusion and stigma, and that we should... Uh, solve the problem of disability by removing disabling barriers not by removing disabled people so those are the sort of polar that's the polar argument Uh, most of us are somewhere in the middle but it shows that there are are really very different views James Watson who says a lot of incautious things um, said once praising the virtues of disability is like praising the virtues of poverty so for him disability is unquestionably bad nobody would wish it and we should all do all in our power to prevent it. The problem with some of these views is that they're uncomfortable throwbacks to a eugenic past, which medicine has done a lot, very successfully, to disown. We're familiar with the history of eugenics in the West between the 19th century and 1945. And the step change, the, 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 the major change in 1945, was to move from eugenics to an individually based, choice based uh, situation. Many disabled people myself not among them, argue that very little has changed and that we're still in a eugenic era. Uh, You may want to comment on that. But for me the uh, sort of two, and we could discuss how to define eugenics for hours but the two significant features of eugenics are that it involves coercion and that it operates at the level of the population. You're talking about racial hygiene, improving the race, uh, improving the quality of the population. And those are not features of contemporary clinical genetics or obstetrics, which are based on couples and individuals and based on their free choices. I want to make another distinction, which has already come up today, the difference between testing, genetic testing, and genetic screening. Testing, just as with PGD, is really about affected families with a history of a particular genetic disease who know all too well what it involves and wish to exercise, consent, exercise their autonomy and choose to use these uh, tests to avoid the birth of other or any children affected by those disorders. I think there's many reasons to believe that quality of consent is very good, information is very good, the relationship with geneticists to their patients is usually very, very good, um, and I'm sure things go wrong, but in general, I'm less worried about that. Screening is where we uh, uh, apply these techniques to a broader population to find out whether they are at increased risk so that they can be offered diagnostic tests. And here I think problems uh, may occur. Um, I think that the broader population are ignorant of the reality of disability in a way that families directly affected may not be. Um, I think that when it's applied to a broader population, qualities of consent, information and counselling may be deficient because obstetrics uh, um, is more like a conveyor belt. It's a very uh, uh, successful uh, process in terms of maternal and fetal mortality. It's hugely beneficial, but the costs are... It's a a rapid throughput. uh, uh, I mean, I don't want to call it industrial, but you can hear what I'm trying to say. And it's that context which makes me somewhat anxious about the extent to which people are, uh, are exercising informed choices, proper choices. Uh, I reiterate, I support people within the law uh, terminating pregnancy affected by disability. I want them to have that right. But I think that this is a profound moral decision. uh, The anthropologist Rainer Rapp says, this technology makes every woman, and I would say every man too, into a bioethicist. That is to say, she and he have to consider what makes life worth living, what burden of disease is too much to bear, whether it's, be, as Ronan and I were saying, whether it's better to be born with a serious disability than not to be born at all. These are huge metaphysical uh, ontological questions which are very difficult. And I think that's an interesting point. This information gives power, but it also gives responsibility. And sometimes people say to me, uh, they're glad they didn't have to make that choice. We did a little straw poll. I'm not going to repeat it, but on this subject I could ask you, how many of you who now have children would have wanted to have the sort of test which you might now be offered and have the opportunity to decide, A, whether you're going to have a test, B, whether you're going to continue the pregnancy. Very difficult, profoundly difficult choices, because these are obviously often 20th week or or, or second trimester generally of pregnancy. You look pregnant, you want the baby, everybody's excited about your pregnancy, and you're deciding that you're not going to have this baby. Now, I'm not saying that you're wrong to do that in any moral sense. But i was saying that psychologically and emotionally, and this, the evidence shows this, there's considerable distress and, and, and anxiety uh, uh, affected by that. So having to choose is difficult. But what I'm particularly concerned with is, are people choosing in terms of the best possible information and support? And all the evidence that I've seen suggests that's not always the case. It shows that information is sometimes incomplete, sometimes misleading, sometimes inadequate, and that, in general, you get some information about the uh, genetic or the uh, uh, um, phenotypic characteristics, but not really about the social experience of having such and such a, a, a genetic condition or disability. And the point is that, for example, I, I, I think it's right to say that I have a G2A transposition at point three eighty in my FGFR3 gene. Too many hip, hip people know whether that's right or not. Um, but, of course, that's not how our chair introduced me. Um, He told you about my professional qualifications. And I could tell you about my family and my background and my class and my love of Newcastle United Football Club. Those are really about me. The G2A transition, of course it's about me. But it doesn't determine my life. And I think that we risk reducing people just to their genetic characteristics or even just to their disability characteristics. We are all more than those things. And we should be anxious about just taking one aspect uh, of... uh, um, Thinking think Greek it's synecdoche, taking apart part for the whole. We're all a complex of things. Disability may not be the only thing. Um, there's evidence that the attitudes, um, not predominantly of geneticists or genetic counsellors, but of obstetricians, are often quite negative about disability. And I think that there are problems in the amount of counselling and support people get. So that makes me worried about whether people are exercising what I would consider to be informed choices, whether they're making the right decision which they don't later regret, We need to do more about that. And, of course, in the wider society, there is so much prejudice about disability, such lack of support for many families with disabled people, that I worry that um, we are not welcoming disabled people in the world. We're not supporting people to continue pregnancy as well as to terminate. And when we're not doing those things, the word eugenics floats into my mind. I say no more. Let me raise some uh, particular uh, questions, and I do so uh, with trepidation not being a legal scholar, uh, which seem to me to come up with prenatal diagnosis. And they're questions about limits uh, and about the right to know and about how far the uh, autonomy goes. and um, How much should a, a radiologist disclose about what he or she sees on the ultrasound screen? so-called soft signs that may be indicative of heart defects or whatever else but may not be. Do they have an obligation to, to, to say that? Now of course if you don't say all that you see and it later turns out that the person the child has the condition then you may be sued. There may be a, a, a malpractice case. So there's a real drive to I think disclose more and more uh, or at least to Uh, You know, see as much as you can and and tell as much as you can and leave it to the individual uh, to make that choice for themselves so how difficult must it be for a couple to be told well there may be a risk, we're not sure and we don't know of what order that risk is in terms of its effect on the baby so very difficult Uh, maybe paternalistically we might not want to mention things that we think are trivial but perhaps in terms of autonomy we should do so and, of course, this raises the question, the legal question of sex selection, currently prohibited. But in practice, if somebody wanted to have a termination for sex selection, presumably it's possible to do that. Um, many people would tell people of the sex of their fetus. And if it's within the, uh, uh, the, uh, the legal limit of 24 weeks, is it not possible that the couple could then go to another physician uh, and present and say, we, we want a social abortion? I'm sure it has happened. Other people may correct me if they think that's ludicrous. But I'm raising the question, and it's quite difficult for us to say what should be the criteria and what should not be the criteria for terminating pregnancy. And this brings us on to uh, the the key issue of the 24-week limit in law for uh, a termination, except in uh, in the situation of serious uh, fetal abnormality. What is serious fetal abnormality? It's not defined. Last year, there was a termination after 24 weeks on the grounds of cleft lip and palate. Now, I can't believe anybody in this room thinks that that is a serious fetal abnormality. It's correctable. It's very rare that it's terminated for, and that's the only uh, situation I can see where it was after 24 weeks. But that's clearly an abuse. But the clinicians must have thought they were doing the right thing, whether in law they were acting negligently or criminally, I'm not capable of judging but these are very subjective things and I think when it gets to the 24 week limit and terminations after that limit there are serious concerns not just among disabled people but among many other people especially in terms of the practice of feticide. Bob Edwards said a few years ago uh, in the future it will be a sin to have a disabled baby I'd like people to think about that and come back to me on that one But it does raise the question of what moral arguments are relevant, how we should think about these things. And the duty to avoid harm uh, occurs very often in the bioethical literature. On the other hand, from the disability point of view, there is the expressivist objection, which I don't think is that strong, but I think has to be considered, which is that if you take steps to avoid the birth of such and such, you are sending out a message to people like me that we are inferior. You are discriminating against me. Now, most people don't see that as a strong argument in terms of disability, but ironically, they see it as a very strong argument in terms of sex selection. I think there are some interesting discontinuities in terms of our reliance on autonomy or other ethical justifications uh, for what goes on. I don't think that disability is always a harm. I do, in general, support autonomy. I'm anxious about how far we let that go. I don't want to overstep my time, and I'm happy to talk about any of these points at a later point, but I just want to uh, say a few words about PGD, because while I understand that there are very real scientific and clinical limits to what we can do in PGD, I think we have seen, undoubtedly, an extension of the grounds for which PGD is offered, and I'm not saying that that's wrong, I'm just saying it has happened, and I think we might like to think a bit more about that as we've already begun to do the guidance originally on PGD was that it would be offered for the same sort of things for which PND is offered. So if you weren't prepared to do a, 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 a selective abortion on this ground, you shouldn't do PGD. Well, I put it to you that that's not the case anymore. Um, and I'm not criticising any clinician here or elsewhere for that development. But you know, the whole donor-sibling issue would not come up in prenatal diagnosis, but clearly does come up. In PGD and it does raise issues I think um, and often not today but often the justification given by clinicians is choice uh, the choice of prospective parents and I think that's interesting because I don't believe that that is what is the inherent approach and I'm not saying that it's wrong that it's not but I think there's actually something more specific going on for example And the sort of test cases I'm interested in are test cases like, you know, okay, you're using PGD to avoid the the particular disease. What about choosing the donor sibling? What about choosing from the remaining embryos the girl rather than the boy? What about choosing a non-carrier? Now, of course, if you're a carrier for for a recessive disorder, you're not going to be personally affected yourself, So what's the difference? But if you say, no, but in general we should put back the best embryo and the carrier is not as good as the non-carrier, you know, that's quite interesting, isn't it? And I just want to talk you through a quick case, a hypothetical case on this board, because it raises the question of choosing disability and what I call a lesbian deaf baby shocker, uh, which was not a case of PGD, but was a case of um, uh, 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 sperm donation. This is a hypothetical case. Uh, Let us say somebody with achondroplasia, which is a dominant... And if I got the genetics wrong, please, that would be humiliating and I Um, uh, apologise. So let's say two people with achondroplasia, my condition. Not a particularly serious condition, I would argue. I'm happy for people to terminate up to 24 weeks of it, don't get me wrong. But I don't think it's a sort of very life undermining condition. And that's an interesting argument. Let's say two people meet and want to have children. And that happens... ...all the time. Loads and loads... ...I don't have a partner with achondroplasia... ...but loads of my achondroplasia friends do. Now, there are four outcomes in a condition like achondroplasia... ...because it's a, 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 a um, autosomal dominant condition. There's, in one in four cases, um, you get, as it were... ...the unaffected copy of the FGFR3 gene... ...in your average height. In two out of four cases, you get one, for, one of each... ...and you're heterozygous. That means you're affected. And in one out of four cases you get uh, your, your homozygous and, and that's called double dose and that's not compatible with life. That's a lethal outcome uh, in, in, as I understand it and certainly in, in the case of many of my friends. So lots of my friends have had this very tragic outcome. So what we, now we have PGD, we can go to Peter or whomever and say, right, we want PGD. We do not wish to have a one in four chance of a dead baby in. Uh, as we know, probability has no memory. That could happen over and over again. Okay, that's fine, says Peter. That's fine. I know, sorry, I, I don't mean to personalize it. Uh, uh, let's buy, uh, uh, uh Our physician says, that's fine. And they say, but we don't want you to put in this one either. We want you to put one of those two in. Yeah. Now, that's a challenge, I suspect, for, for most physicians. Because they're there... To, to, you know, they're not there to create disability, are they? They're, they're to actually, so, but hang on a minute The justification for this technology is choice And this is the autonomous choice of these p- parents So there is a clash here In the sort of language that we're using They might not want deliberately to do that uh, And people feel anxious when I put it to them Physicians and my, fr- my, my acquaintance So then I say, okay, well look, I'll make it easier for you uh, Just pick any of them Pick at random, leave it to God or fate, or whatever it is. And they feel a little bit better about that, because they're not deliberately choosing this one. But they still feel a little bit uncomfortable about it. They feel that they're doing it, and they need that one. Do you know what I mean? But for a lot of people with aichondroplasia, they don't care. And maybe it's better for them to have a child like them, because their house is adapted for people like them, maybe a tall person would actually be seriously disadvantaged in their house. You know, they wouldn't be able to use the services and they get, you know, <laughs> certain, you know. So in that environment, the tall child would be uh, disabled. So I'm being facetious, but, and I don't believe this has ever happened, but it, it will. And lots of other things will too. Um, and I think that this pushes us on what we think about autonomy and what we think about disability and what we think constitutes harm for a future child. Um, it's, we, we are between paternalism and autonomy, and this is a difficult place to be. And we have problems with the information that we currently have. I've mentioned soft signs and other uh, things that we can't predict the, the impact of. With gene chips, we'll have an awful lot more information. Information in pregnancy, but also information about those eight embryos in the uh, petri dishes or however they are located. Now, I don't believe that we're going to have designer babies in the sense that you can pick and mix at will. But we're going to know a hell of a lot more about those 6, 8, 12 embryos. And maybe our techniques will be a bit better in terms of enabling uh, uh, successful outcomes from implantation. So, you know, if people want to have the girl or they want to have the one that doesn't have the allele that's associated with shyness, you know, how are we going to stop them and in the end of the day if there is more demand and it will never become particularly widespread because the tried and tested method is obviously much more fun um, uh, if there is more demand it will be about people who can pay and that raises other questions of justice so I'll stop there I haven't answered anything but I hope I've provoked you a little bit